Hello and welcome to Searching for the Question Live. My name is David Orban and I am very happy to have all of you here on the show. Uh, before we start, I want to remind you that even if we are live, uh, you can uh, watch past episodes on YouTube, Facebook, and uh, you can, of course, uh, subscribe to the channel on uh, on YouTube to be alerted when uh, we are going to be live uh, and the new episodes are available. Uh, we also have a Discord community that uh, you can join in order to continue the conversation uh, around the themes uh, uh, that are quite varied and uh, there are very stimulating uh, questions that uh, we can also look at uh, at uh, greater depth, uh, just uh, discussing them uh, around amongst uh, ourselves. And uh, if uh, you like uh, uh, searching for the question live, as well as uh, uh, other um, uh, content that uh, I produce together with my team, uh, you are uh, welcome to become a supporter on uh, Patreon at patreon.com slash David Orban. Today, we are going to talk about uh, uh, the issues of how humanity evolves with technology. This is what has been happening for the past 10,000 years and more. And this evolution appears to be accelerating. If um, 100 or 200 years ago or more, you could live your entire life uh, in an environment that was unchanging, statistically speaking. And generation after generation, that would still be the case. And you could expect your children to um, spend their lives under the same conditions, constraints, good and bad, as you did. And traditions were rooted in this deep understanding and belief that things would be unchanging forever. Today, that is definitely not true. Uh, To the contrary, we are now living under the assumption that things are going to be changing and changing maybe even faster than uh, we expect. Now, the point, though, is that we all individually and also probably as a species and as a society have um, a limit to our adaptability. And as a consequence, we have to understand how these limits uh, are, what they are, and how we can overcome them if possible. And transhumanism is indeed the philosophy, the approach that asks itself these questions. What are these limits? How can we overcome these limits? And that is what we are going to be talking uh, about with uh, Stefan, who I welcome. Thank you very much for being on the show with uh, us today, Stefan. Many thanks to David for inviting me. It's a great pleasure for me. And we are also going to talk about what is post-humanism. I have no idea. So uh, we will uh, discuss issues that have uh, very important formal academic roots in philosophy, but also issues that have tremendously important existential implications for everybody uh, on the planet. Um, So, uh, Stefan, what I like to to do with my guests uh, uh, as we start is, uh, first of all, to ask them, 
how they are because uh, it is not at all uh, a given uh, in in today's world. Um, you are alive. That's one brownie point. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and and where are you? How have you been these past uh, three four months? I'm fine. Um... I'm in a privileged position here. I'm not constrained to go out. I can teach um, from my home, which is in, in Rome. And so this is, this is quite a privileged place to be. And from here, I've been doing my remote learning, my remote teaching sessions. I've had in exchanges with my students. And so this is a really good place to be. And, and, and I'm aware that it's a privileged place to be. And in, in addition, um, Rome is even possible when you have to stay at home because the climate is amazing here. And, and uh, Rome is a beautiful city. If uh, uh, some of our uh, viewers have the opportunity in the future when we can travel again to go and visit Rome and they haven't been, it is truly one of the places that you must see in the world. Um, so uh, you are a part of the a member of the faculty at uh, at John uh, Cabot University, uh, which uh, is itself uh, in a in a amazing part of Rome, uh, in in Trastevere, um, uh, and close to the to the river, but uh, also with nice gardens in a in an old uh, building. How long have you been associated with the with the university? So I've moved here at the beginning of 2016. I'm sort of a you know, tenured faculty member of John Cabot University. It's an amazing location. It's a wonderful university, which is right at the core of Rome. Rome is indeed probably the most beautiful city in the world. And Trasteva is, is the best part of it. That's where you, you go out. That's where you can sit outside, socialize with your friends, eat delicious meals, and then University is hosted in a, in a in a beautiful building of the 12th century, and right sort of a, a kilometer away from the Vatican, right in the center. And so we can sit in normal circumstances. You can sit on a on a on a roof terrace and discuss some of the most pressing issues of our times here, because here basically what I'm doing is I'm promoting the reflections on the impact of emerging technologies. And, and the university is uh, uh, accredited, of course, and it is giving both uh, undergraduate and graduate courses. Exactly. It's, it's giving undergraduate and, and graduate courses. It's U.S. accredited um, and also in, in, in Italy. And, um, but it's a, a U.S. American university. So um, we've got, you know, a third of the students normally come from the United States. A third of the students come from Italy and the rest comes from the rest of the world, from Saudi Arabia, Ukraine, Russia, um, Korea. And so it's a wonderful... How, um, how many students um, uh, in, in the average um, uh, year? Oh, we've got 1,500 students. So it's a really small place and the classes are also quite small. They are limited to 25 students. In the average, we've got normally like 15 students per class. So it's a very intimate exchange between students and professors. One can get to know each other and, and promote them on the way towards becoming um, scholars or on, on which other way they want to work on. And, uh, and how did you originally get in touch uh, with, with the university? Uh, you are originally from Germany, right? I'm originally from Germany, 
I and and were, you, were you a philosopher already when you were young? I've, you know, started to become a philosopher already sort of at the, before my teens. And your parents hoped that, that it, it would change. It would be only like an adolescent uh, twist and, and you I will would grow out of it. <laughs> oh, well, this is what they hoped for. No, but I really must say they did support me on, on my way and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But obviously, I was I was very good in school in, in mathematics and physics. These were my main subjects, and mm. my original plan was was to you know to study mathematics, and so this is also partly what they have been hoping for, and and then suddenly I realized, but the real questions uh, are the ones which are being dealt with in in philosophy. These are the ones which which uh, we need to tackle, and and uh, mathematics is actually the best possible preparation for for thinking about philosophical issues without a proper uh, without a proper um, um, preparation in like logical thinking mathematical thinking I don't think you can do philosophy in the right kind of manner and 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 would um, 90% of uh, the philosophers that philosophers admire be discarded by that observation well I can tell you that most students actually, um, drop out. They expect to study philosophy, sit around, think profound thoughts, have a cup of coffee, have some drinks, and and um, talk about meaningful issues. And but this is not really what philosophy is like in the end. I mean, we do talk about these things, but uh, it is really about extremely rigorous way of thinking about the the, the most profound issues. Because philosophers, as I think, are the sort of the stuntmen for the tricky questions which come up in all the sciences. But that's why the dropout rate in philosophy is ninety percent, which is higher than in in any other subject. And and uh, isn't it uh, paradoxical that people who should be clearly thinking are unable to communicate what their subject is about to the degree that those who are candidates to follow their footsteps leave the field because they didn't really understand what uh, they were going to do. Yeah, this is this is very true. And actually in, in most of the in most of the disciplines it's only like the very best people who really understand the challenging philosophical issues underlying underlying their own fields and then sort of there's an exchange between between you know the leading scientists, leading chemists, leading physicists, um, in 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 all the fields with philosophers, and the philosophers even um, manage if you know they are good, they manage to straighten out, help them to get to think more clearly about what they're doing in their own field. So um, you know a good philosopher also has to be proficient in in specific disciplines. I mean I've been working for example in um, in a, in a medical department for a couple of years. Uh, and so in, I was in close contact um, with physicians. I was the only philosopher among, you know, 20 physicians in the department. And so I helped them to get their thinking right. And they supported me in getting a better understanding how genome editing works, what goes on when we implant sort of deep brain stimulation. And so this is a very fruitful way of, of doing philosophy and having exchanges. And I think, um, 
um, that's the only proper way of also how you can think properly, do proper philosophy yourself, and not just do the history of philosophy. Because that's not what I've what I've studied philosophy for. Why I became a philosopher? Because I really want to deal with you know I'm I'm perplexed by the world. Why is there something rather than nothing? And so I really want to engage with these questions. And so uh, one of my favorite philosophers is Daniel Dennett. Yeah. Uh, and 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 one of the reasons uh, is because he is able to communicate so clearly, and never hides uh, behind. Uh, um, uh, complex uh, terminology uh, or pretend that uh, you can only talk about certain subject if you are able to read Kant in the original German. Uh, and uh, and um, one of his, his books, uh, uh, one of his more recent books is entitled uh, Intuition, Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking. And the book opens with such an amazing statement. He says, uh, philosophy evolves as a subject. We built better tools for thinking over the course of the centuries and the millennia. And if you become familiar with the tools that I am illustrating in this book, you will be a better philosopher than Socrates or Aristoteles or Plato. And that is an astonishing starting point uh, that that is just accelerating from my point of view. I don't know if you share it, but an even, I think, more provocative question. If philosophy is such an important underpinning across many scientific disciplines, can and should philosophy aim to be a science too? And if it may become one, how will it measure its own progress? How will it be tested in an epistemologically sound manner? Yeah. Let me first answer sort of your to your first comment. I think that's been a very important one. What you said about the clarity. Um, there, there's a division in the field of philosophy. There are many different approach, philosophical approaches, and. And I think clarity is in, enormously important. The clearer you are, the better. If you cannot clear about what you want to say, you're not a good philosopher. But there are different traditions in philosophy um, who do not subscribe to that understanding. Um, I know even in the exchange of articles, I've been criticized for being so clear. Not, someone wrote, um, he's so clear, he cannot be profound. I strongly disagree with that understanding of philosophy. So, yeah, so I share your understanding, whatever can be said. So if it can be said, if you properly understood it, then it can be said clearly. But I would, I disagree actually that philosophy is a science. Um, I, I didn't say that it was. The okay. question was, should it aim to be? Okay, should it? I, I don't even think it should aim to be a science, but it should be. Um, it's, it's like you know, the stuntman in the tricky cases. It's sort of where, where the empirical sciences stop. They, their reflections, their scientific endeavors are based on a, on a philosophical paradigm. And whether, um, um, and whether that paradigm is, is true or, or false cannot be verified or falsified by means of empirical questions. So whether you understand, whether you analyze the humans, 
by means of, you know, by means of a immaterial soul or whether that's part of the empirical world, there is not an empirical verification or falsification of that. However, um, so the underlying paradigm is what we reflect upon. So that's why I don't think we should aim for being a science. However, we should aim for being in close contact with the sciences. So a good philosopher has to understand what's going on in the sciences. The latest finding in, in biotechnology, in AI technology, has to understand um, cryptocurrencies if, if they want to talk about it. And, and, but that doesn't mean philosophy itself should aim to be a science. Um. I, I will think about it, and, and I, I don't want to get stuck on this point, yeah. which we, we could run the risk of, of, of doing. Uh, there are certain disciplines that uh, can be recursively applied to themselves. So, for example, uh, the study of mathematics is mathematical. And mathematical tools can be developed in order to categorize, for example, different approaches. Um, Meta-mathematics is mathematics. Now, as I go about looking at certain philosophies and compare philosophical thought through time, for example, to establish whether certain philosophers even deserve to be studied, uh, unless I'm a historian of, of philosophy, because maybe their usefulness has passed. And our current tool set simply discarded the approaches that they were practicing. That kind of approach is probably appropriately philosophical by itself. But is it admissible for philosophy to pretend to be able to say something about every possible science be without being sufficiently scientific and 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 i am struggling with that a little bit i am sufficiently attached to the wonderful uh, efficiency of the scientific method to allow another discipline to to have things to say about all sciences without passing through uh, the, 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 the requirements and the proofs that the scientific method would, would uh, impose, right? Mm -hmm. so, so we will leave that for another, uh, uh, for, for the next uh, conversation we will have. Now, maybe just, maybe just one course, comment yes. sort of, in order to, to show the, one must distinguish also between sort of ontological reflections and and reflections on values, on morals. Okay, so see. what is an ontological reflection? Um, so ontological would be, it's a reflection on what there is, on whether we are confronted with, you know, what a table is, what the world is, whether we can talk about, meaningfully talk about the world. Um, that's a different question to ethical ones where we talk about values, norms, what should be the case. And just to show that, that at least the ethical reflections now, um, they cannot be investigated by means of scientific, empirically or scientific inquiries. You don't see values, you don't see norms. 
So here it's a matter of which ontological status do these values and norms have? And that's, that's, that's really tricky because in a way one can, you would want to say if someone murders an innocent child, that is, that is an evil action. But where do you get this evil from? Which, which crowning do you have for that? And if it's not, if it's not, we'll go back. And we'll, these are the, just to show the relevance. We will, but but we will go back to that point within within the hour we we or or three. I don't know how much time we will spend together, but uh, uh, today. But um, what I want to start now exploring is whether you uh, or or how you approach the the opening remark that uh, that I uh, I exposed about the interaction between humanity and technology. Uh, and and um, why is it, evidently, it is from your point of view, because a lot of your work is around that, why is it useful to introduce beyond transhumanism this additional term of post-humanism and how the two relate to each other? So it's, it was not just me who introduced the term post-humanism. Both transhumanism and, and posthumanism were coined a long term time ago. I mean, transhumanism was coined in 1951 by Julian Huxley. Um, posthumanism is a term which was coined at the end of the 70s. Um, the traditions are radically separate. Transhumanism has to do with evolutionary thinking has to do with reflections on the impact of emerging technologies, a lot of taking a normative stance, but it's very much related to evolutionary thinking. It's an affirmation. By using technologies, our lives will get better. Post-humanism, on the other hand, has a different cultural background. It comes from postmodern thinking. It comes from French, German philosophy. And here it is more of an transcending of a twisting of traditional humanism. It's more a reflection of, uh, on the very foundations of, of who we are, of who we are as human beings. And, and I think both of these approaches are very important. I think both of these approaches have something extremely important to contribute to philosophy. And both of these approaches represent a paradigm shift away from the origins um, of what has been taken for granted in philosophical circles for 2,000 years. And so it's, it's really um, a paradigm-shifting way of thinking, and it breaks away with the very foundations of our Western way of thinking. And that's why, for example, someone like Francis Fukuyama, this political scientist in the U.S., has referred to transhumanism as the world's most dangerous idea, because it, everything we have taken for granted most of the leading philosophers in the Western tradition have taken for granted is being undermined both by transhumanism as well as by posthumanism. Um, but both of these traditions have a different focus. Um, are you happy with the Wikipedia article on posthumanism? And, 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 and if not, uh, did you try and, and straighten it out? I did not try and straighten it out, but it is... Um, it is. It has some some very good aspects. I think it has improved quite a bit in in recent times. Um, but um, on in in recent years, some very good academic year work 
has been done both in the field of post as well as as transhumanism and uh, in, including uh, uh i would uh like to say because you are too modest to do so um thanks to your efforts uh, because you founded and uh, are uh, the editor in chief of uh, the journal of post human studies and and your uh, esteemed uh, editorial board certainly was able to shepherd uh, a lot of interesting contributions uh, uh, over over the years in this uh, in this journal right oh, many thanks yeah you you're very kind Yes, I've been trying to uh, promote the field of studies in academia. I mean, traditionally, sort of the reflection about the impact of emerging technologies has been looked down upon in philosophical circles. Oh, they were thinking oh, it's just a bunch of young people who've been sitting in front of the computer what, too long. What percentage? You know? What hmm? percentage of uh, philosophers, and more in general, in in social studies? Uh, are proud of their technological ignorance. <laughs> the percentage is quite high, I would say. Isn't it? <laughs> Still, right? And, and, and um, that is just a disgrace. Uh, it is, actually. Um, and, and, and a lot of philosophy which has been done is, is been, it's, it's sort of a history of philosophy. I mean, there are some benefits in history of philosophy and, and, and so on, but not many people, not many philosophers dare to take a stance they're there to actually get confronted with the latest issues and then develop philosophical thinking further. And I, I remember sort of the responses I got um, when I was invited as, as, a, as a keynote speaker on, on, on technology and art. I was the only one talking about contemporary art, about bio art, about you know, the um, brain-computer interfaces, about animals and art. Um, but but everyone else was talking about the use of technology in Renaissance prints. Why? Because they didn't think one can study anything um, which occurs right now, which has occurred in the past 50 years. Everything must have passed a long time. Um, and yeah, so there's a strong hesitation to deal with all these, with the latest de developments, because they, they don't know how to take a, they feel they cannot take a reliable um, perspective on that issues, but I think that's what philosophy, um, good philosophy, is, and and how it how it ought to be done. Yeah, you've just shown some amazing videos. And um, earlier on, some uh, one of the the sculptures, a living sculpture um, by Eduardo Kutch. He's the one who coined the term bioart, and he's a member of the editorial board of the Journal of Posthuman Studies. Tell, so, tell us what are we seeing here because it's quite crazy too. Um, so uh, let me talk about this, this because this, um, um, the fluorescent rabbit uh, who, uh, whom you've just shown at the beginning is sort of a transgenic rabbit. It's a, a genetically modified rabbit which clothes green in the dark. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not an object, it's not a thing, um, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a living animal which was genetically altered and which now counts as a work of bioart, which now counts as a work of art. And that radically obviously changes our understanding of what a work of art should be. Um, so it's no longer just a painting, it's no longer just a material thing, an object, but now we've got living entities which have been bio biotechnologically in that case altered, who turn into works of art. 
and they die eventually. And actually the rabbit has died. And you wonder whether the process of decay is still part of the process of being a work of art. So, so the, the, the emerging technologies do not only have an impact on, they have an impact on all, all aspects of our life world, also on the realm of arts. And, and that's what I think what we need to reflect upon as philosophers. That's what I'm doing. Um, one, one important um, component in, in, in all of this is that the speed of change is such that traditional sedate methods relying on elderly members of our society having grown accustomed to certain things as they are digested in the fabric of our everyday life and then pronouncing uh, what uh, the degree of usefulness or, or, or value of that new component in, in society is, cannot do their work anymore because uh, things change too fast, then, then we die. Uh, 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 that was actually uh, in not that not that exact wording, but a similar wording was a an astonishing slide uh, that uh, uh, Brad Pettis, who then went on to found uh, the the 3D printer company. Um, I don't remember even the name of the 3D printer company. It used to be the leading 3D consumer 3D printing company. Brad Pettis gave a talk at the uh, Berlin. Uh, Chaos Computer Club conference, and and uh, and and that was it. Things change too fast, then right. we can die. So so given that that old methodology is not applicable anymore, the responsibility of policymakers who are in total despair and would like to re rely on various kinds of advisors who most commonly come from industry and they represent a very narrow interest, set of interests. But what probably you would like, on the shoulders of philosophers is a huge responsibility because you have to rapidly come up with the best possible way to interpret the implications of certain technologies while we are already implementing and, and, and sending them out in the world. Yeah, you're right. Um, that's, a, that's a very important point, actually. And, and it, it, it goes deeper. You can see sort of the um, philosophical developments in the past 2,000 years. And we don't even realize that the relics of that thinking are still culturally dominant. Sort of, they represent the, the legal framework on which our actions are based, on which we are judged as human beings. Or, I, just, I just want to show, represent one example. Um, um, that so our, our self-understanding as human beings. Um, the German foundational law is a very good example, but it applies to most constitutions in the world. Only humans possess dignity. Animals are legally supposed to be treated like objects. There's still sort of that, that's the categorical distinction between humans and the rest of the natural world. And, and this is absurd. I mean, this is, this is a result 
of the reflections which have taken for granted in philosophical circumstances. That is basically an implication of what Plato, Descartes, Kant affirmed, but it's still legally valid. In most constitutions in the world, only humans possess the divine spark and therefore ought to be treated with dignity, possess personhood. Animals are supposed to be classified as things and obviously, you know, plants and the rest of the world. And that has enormous implications concerning what kind of research we are allowed to do. You know, how we are supposed to, to, to ethically maybe modify human beings, apply genome editing, CRISPR-Cas9 to humans. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really a change on a very fundamental philosophical level which is taking place as a consequence of sort of the revised understanding of us as human beings, which took place with evolutionary thinking with Darwin and sort of transhumanism is an outcross of, of the D Darwinian paradigm shift. And I think sort of on a cultural level, on a legal level, um, the entire implications have not yet been realized. I My mean, favorite example of what you just uh, mentioned is uh, how the Aristotelian distinction between humanities and, and practical um, uh, occupations where the first are believed to be superior and the second inferior is still dominating both our education, uh, uh, the, the, the perception of the value of professions and occupations. And it is very, very detrimental uh, when uh, so much uh, of, of uh, our uh, well-being is derived from our ability to understand and apply knowledge in the world for practical means rather than you know abstract uh, thinking uh, disjuncted by disjointed by by their their applications okay. um, and 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 if uh, philosophy is um, is is recognizing this responsibility then then philosophy should both aim to understand technology very deeply because of how much an increasing percentage of our world is defined by technology and its evolution but also <clears throat> philosophy should equip itself with technology just as we have been, you know, enhancing our vision through <clears throat> telescopes and microscopes or just, uh, you know, viewing glasses if uh, we are myopic, uh, philosophy may be suffering from myopia if it is not using technology at its fullest. Exactly. That applies, I mean, both to the use of technology um, to making yourself familiar with technology. I mean, how should you be able to uh, say something sensible about genome editing without knowing what's actually going on, without having been in a lab and someone has shown you sort of the procedures? Um, the same um, applies obviously to the digital technologies as well. But in the end, also it comes down to sort of a very, to the philosophical question on how we see ourselves. And what, what is reason? What does reason stand for? And the traditional answer was reason is sort of, it comes from outside. It's the divine in immaterial spark to which our material body gets connected. And with these 
post-human philosophies with these new approaches, that understanding of reason gets altered. And nowadays it's being more realized that we've always been technologically altered beings. We've always been, I, I like to stress, we've always been cyborgs. We've always been cybernetic organisms. The cybernetic comes from Kubernetes, which means the hel helmsman, the steers person of a ship. So we've always been altered, steered organisms. And sort of our parents teaching us language, that's the first upgrade which we get as human beings. We get upgraded by means of language. It doesn't come from, from outer space. It doesn't come from an immaterial world. But that's the first kind of technological alteration which we receive. And the entire you know, education process is a further modification process. And if we understand that, then, then we see the benefits also which have to do with technologies on the one hand. On the other hand, we also recognize that technologies are not something external to us, are not something aliens, but are something which you know, have always helped us to increase the likelihood of us living good lives. And um, if, we if we understand that, then, then there's not a good reason to, to be hostile to the latest technologies. But we need to uh, uh, use them and apply them and integrate them in the curriculum, in the educational curriculum, but also in a legal framework in the appropriate manner. And that's what we need to discuss. So sort of what is the appropriate and, and manner? Actually, and actually that, that there are glimpses, glimpses of this understanding percolating uh, across uh, society is, is, I think, quite neatly demonstrated by the fact that uh, there are emerging um, sections of, of, of IT you know, narrowly looking at it, but more broadly of of technologies applied to areas that didn't believe to be technological before. We are talking about fintech, where finance is recognized as a technology and as a consequence aims to take advantage of as much as possible in, in improving itself through technology. You mentioned cryptocurrencies, for example. Uh, in Europe, there is a fantastic uh, piece of legislation, only partially implemented, even though compulsory, uh, that uh, requires all banks to be interoperable so that you are never in a silo, but your money can or should be more freely flowing than, than before. Uh, another uh, discipline uh, is reg tech, regulatory technology. How can different sets of regulations be compared to uh, each other and how can best practices from um, uh, from jurisdictions that uh, that successfully implemented certain um, frameworks for example regulating biotechnology in Singapore or in the UK be adopted in other countries that that recognize that that set of regulations is uh, a firm basis on which, to both educate and then and then innovate, um, in, in without having to reinvent uh, everything from scratch. So I'm definitely looking forward for philosophy to also adopt this stance and become. I don't know whether it's going to be called field tech uh, or or whatever it should be, uh, but but where technology enhances and 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 allows philosophy to be. Uh, impactful because 
we we very very much need it um a, an article that uh, you um contributed or maybe it is an interview uh in um uh, a, a magazine clearly states this um where you talk about the future of digital surveillance and healthcare the interaction of big data and privacy and it's a wonderful article uh, and one of one of uh, a more provocative uh, uh, statements that i like to 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 um, poke people with is in the future there will be no company that will be able to afford not to employ a philosopher because today only the largest pharmaceuticals have uh, bioethics committees but ethical committees applied to any possible uh, uh, ethical implication of what you do will become as important as having a chief information officer today there will be the cpo the ch chief uh, philosoph philosophy officer of of uh, these enterprises and and uh, I don't know whether you agree or disagree, but but I think that is pretty important. When when I meet somebody who is studying philosophy, I'm telling them, "Wow, that is one of the most um, uh, sought after professions that that is going to be in the future." Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's not a surprise that a common friend of ours, I mean, Martin Rosblatt. Um, who's um, the CEO of a, of a big pharmaceutical company in, in the US. I mean, she got her PhD in, in medical ethics, in bioethics. So um, besides her being trained as a lawyer, she knows how to reflect philosophically on all these issues. And that's, that's partly the reason why, I mean, she's got an understanding of the wider impact of what she's doing with these new technologies. And quite a few actually big companies, yeah, uh, as you mentioned, um, they, they have employed philosophers in order to get a better understanding um, of what they can do. Also, a, a better understanding on the legal implications. So it's not just a, um, uh, uh, it's not just getting understanding concerning how it changes our, our self-understanding, but also sort of the wider social aspect. And I think um, in particular, sort of the field of, of, of technologies which I regard as the most promising, um, they also challenge our best our self-understanding of who we are as human beings. And they have to do with brain-computer interfaces, sort of with chips wandering into our bodies, our bodies getting upgraded by means of RFID chips. And, and this will, from how I see it, this will have some of the most important implications and uh, for for the for the decades to come sort of what's what elon musk is doing with Neuralink. that's that's most fascinating and i think it will have enormous implication also concerning how we how we survey our body how we treat ourselves whether we can realize something like predictive maintenance on our body predictive maintenance is, is sort of a technological procedure which has been used on airplanes, on machines so far. So you've got sensors in a machine and they tell you, oh, this certain, this certain part needs to be fixed. It's still well functioning. 
Um, but 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 in the next six months, it needs to be exchanged. And if we, our bodies, receive such an upgrade with chips, uh, we also could apply that predictive maintenance on our health technology, which could an, have enormous consequence for the increase of our health span. And that's that's a goal which is of enormous interest to, to most people in the world. Uh, you have a book uh, coming out uh, in uh, English translation, originally written in German in uh, December, on transhumanism. Uh, what, uh, what is the message of the book and why, why should I read it? So it's, it's, it presents reasons for how transhumanism represents a paradigm shift in our cultural, um, in our cultural history. And it also shows why the use of the emerging technologies is not something which leads to only a very stereotypical way of, of living our lives, only like Superman on Viagra or, or Wonder Woman on Botox get, get promoted by means of transhumanism, but actually technology is a means of increasing plurality in the world. And, and a further aspect, which I think is very important, that um, the, the, the application of technologies doesn't doesn't necessarily lead to injustices doesn't necessarily lead to a further hierarchization of society um, only by applying the new technologies in the appropriate manner i think this is sustainable and just society can actually be promoted best so you, if you want to have a, an understanding of the his, history and and the past and the the past and the present of transhumanism as well as some of the most important discourses um, this is a, is a very good book for you. But I'll also take my stance. I also show sort of central elements of what I stand for in comparison to what other transhumanists affirm. You, you have a new fan, Tiago uh, from uh, Brazil, saying hello. And he says, uh, I love transhumanism. It's a very interesting subject. It is, uh, I believe, not only... Uh, uh, one of the world's uh, most dangerous ideas or the most dangerous idea. Uh, but that is a consequence of its power and, and of its importance. So first of all, it is a powerful and important idea. And then if it is dangerous, is because maybe you feel threatened because you feel uncertain in your identity, in, in your purpose in your role in this world that is rapidly changing but Excellent. what i hope that uh, uh, the people who feel uh, that that they are not up to confronting the implications of the idea of transhumanism come to realize is that we have the power in ourselves to be a protagonist of our lives regardless of how rapidly the world is changing and that we don't depend on antiquated reference frames that box us in in a certain kind of recognition of who we are and in relationship with others we can redefine uh, uh, those those frameworks we can uh, break out of the boxes and uh, the freedom that we acquire as a consequence is exhilarating it's 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 uh, frightening, of course, just like the roller coaster is frightening and accelerating, but we want to ride it nonetheless. Exactly. It's breaking away from all the certainties we, which we used to have, sort of all the stabilities our traditional 
way of conceptualizing the world. So it's it's a very dynamic worldview. But that is also obviously why it's it's so extremely frightening um, to to many people. And in, in particular, actually in in Europe, there's an enormous hesitation to embrace these ideas connected to transhumanism. I mean, as a I've been promoting these ideas now for you know for decades. Um, and in, in Europe, um, I'm usually invited to sort of cultural events, social events, less political events. However, um, I gave talks at very, you know, I was invited by uh, some, the Minister of in Innovation from, from Taiwan. I was in, in a, uh, invited by big event, political events in, in South Korea several times. And, and, and they asked me for advice. I mean, in Taiwan, it was an event where the former general director of the World Trade Organization participated in. And it was an event on, on smart cities. And, and they wanted to listen to a philosopher to provide them with some implication, with some insights. It is and, quite painful. And, and in Europe, as, as you say, uh, the, the the position is completely the opposite uh, of uh, what is called the precautionary principle that has been actually included in the Lisbon Treaty, which is the equivalent of the European Constitution, even though 600 pages long. And, uh, and this uh, uh, precautionary principle is almost the guaranteed death of innovation because it requires you to prove the lack of any danger, lack of every possible damage. And, and it is ready to give up on all upside if you cannot prove that there is zero downside, which is, of course, impossible. And I, I had uh, uh, the, the, the privilege of, 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 be, uh, of being invited. Maybe they didn't know I was a transhumanist in a, in a European uh, Union uh, or European Commission workshop in Brussels um, designing the policy recommendations for the next 30 years of educational policy. And, you know, it was a three days workshop, uh, very good and very intense uh, with maybe 20 people. And uh, I waited and waited and waited. And then I said, um, so as technology progresses, we can expect, I don't know if it, 10 years, I don't know if in 20 years, but guaranteed within 30 years, the widespread availability of cognitive enhancement through technology, which will require completely redesigned relationships between teachers and students and the way of learning and blah, 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 blah. And the representative from Germany had to leave the room because he realized that he wouldn't have the power of restraining himself because he was about to punch me physically. And, and, and that was a very clear demonstration of what a huge chasm there is between the reality and how Europe sees itself and its role. And, uh, and it is not uh, very promising because once it is in the Constitution, or almost, it is very, very difficult to unseat. Tiago is asking a great question. He is saying, do you believe we should, have, we should have the right to completely edit our DNA as if we were to become a new species? 
Yeah. Um, how do we? How how should we approach these new questions? We are confronted with an enormous amount of of new questions, in particular when it comes to gene gene editing technologies. So my suggestion is always to find an analogous procedures which we we've been confronted with in the past. So with respect to gene editing, it's basically part of our morphological freedom. So. Um, as long as we take on our responsibility for ourselves, then, you know, and it doesn't concern or tackle other people, then we should have the right to, to modify ourselves. It's getting a bit more complicated when it comes to decisions made by parents for their children, because it's here, you know, someone else um, who's, who it has consequences for someone else. But even in, in such a relationship, you can see it's, it's a parental duty to educate the child. And education is, is, is structurally analog, analogous to, um, to parents making um, genetically modifying the child. In both circumstances, you know, a parent, normally a good parent is sort of the intention is to in, in increase the likelihood of the child living a good life. And whether you use measures or whether you use genome editing techniques, that's just a matter of the techniques. The goal is the same. When the goal is the same, um, when the goal is a good one, and when the goal doesn't constitute child abuse, then obviously we should be allowed to use these technologies. And that's sort of, there's such a strong hesitation to embrace these technologies. Um, but by, by comparing these technologies with traditional ones, we can see, um, we can find a reliable way of how to judge these new technologies. And in that case, I think sort of the um, principle of morphological freedom, as well as the right of parents of educative freedom, um, implies that, that genome editing should be able, I mean, parents should have the right to use genome editing techniques on their children if they are reliable and if they are used for, for good ends in the same way as, as we have good educative ends. They are not always good, because obviously if it's, if it's, if it's a, the risk is too high, then sort of um, the application on children, then one needs to be more careful. But if it's, it becomes a reliable technique and the goal is something which, which normally also gets, gets promoted by means of education, then it could also turn into a, a moral duty of the parent to, to use it on their children. For example, if we manage to, on a, in a reliable way, if we manage to increase the likelihood of the child living 30 years longer in the average, and that's a reliable way of applying, which we can realize by means of CRISPR, then what would you say to a parent who says, I don't want to do this to my child, you know, and it would not really be a good parent, no? But, but there is a 2,000-year-old book that tells me I shouldn't. Well, I'm not actually, I'm not even sure whether this is the case. Um, I've, I mean, they're actually, in, in, in that book which you're referring to, there are many passages of people who've lived for 120 years or more, Methuselah even more. Um, so if you look at these passages, 
um, then it could even become a religious duty. I mean, so far we've got an average lifespan of 80 years. In the Bible, you find uh, you know people living having lived 120 years. So even um, you know also for a, a Christian, it it should be an option, maybe even an obligation to promote the the lifespan. My of- my way of uh, looking at this question uh, is is a bit simplistic. Um, if you love humanity then you have a choice of either letting robots colonize the universe or if you also want humans to take part in the adventure of wonderful exploration that we have ahead of us then necessarily you will want to have humans well adapted to live on mars to live uh, uh, in the uh, asteroid belt, uh, in the moons around uh, Jupiter, uh, or in interstellar space. And the degree of transformation, uh, whether in uh, our body shape, our metabolism, or even our in our cognitive processes, as maybe millennia pass before we arrive to the next uh, star system, are going to be required will represent a, a, a beautiful flourishing of different ways of living the human condition. And then it will be up to that new Congress of uh, varied, rich uh, diversity of civilizations to come to an agreement if the world word still applies. If it is necessary and useful to call each of the members of these different ways of living humans, or we will come up with another name. Maybe uh, it will be the robots uh, saying, listen, fine, you are our ancestors. We love you unconditionally, but let's come up with a name that is, please, more inclusive. Either you call me human too, regardless of having uh, been born from steel and silicon, or we find a word that enables us to coexist and and recognizes our rights, our duties, our aspirations, uh, and and dreams collectively. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, with that view, I think uh, we we realize that, that if we decide not to embrace that variety, we declare humanity dead right there we it is game over exactly and this is sort of part of what i've tried to show earlier on already it's moving away traditionally it was only humans who possess dignity only humans who have personhood only we are special but now we need to realize no actually it's that's speciesism peter singer you know one of the most famous philosophers alive that's a, the word um, he, he is using um, we attribute a higher moral status to humans just because they are a member of the human species um, and not because of some capacities they have but if if the capacity if animals have the capacities or robots have the capacities we shouldn't be so speciesist we should also acknowledge their relevance and that's moving away 
uh, giving a new moral understanding to other entities in the world. But that's that means I, I, mean, I understand sort of knowing knowing the history of these of these concepts. I understand what an enormous task it is because it means breaking away from our cultural past of the past two thousand years. So for many people, they've got an enormous hesitation of taking that step of acknowledging that yes, a great ape, a chimpanzee, can also count as a person. And actually, in, in Argentina, it was recently ruled by a court that um, an orangutan was attributed personhood, and as a consequence, the, the orangutan had to be freed, had to be liberated from the zoo. But the same obviously applies also to, to, to robots. If the robots, and, and there's a, you know, there are good reasons for claiming that, um, if robots have the necessary capacities, we must also acknowledge their moral equality. And so personhood should open up from not just being limited to humans, but also members of, of you know, of, of, of other species, of other animals, and as well as to, to robots. And this, is, this will promote a more inclusive society, a more, a more pluralistic society as well. One, one of uh, the great promises, in my opinion, of artificial intelligence is to force us uh, in, a, in a way that is beyond being accelerated. Um, as as uh, part of the group that designed the Singularity University 12 years ago, we are, you know, neck deep in exponential technologies where you have a constant rate of acceleration designing these curves of technology uh, um, improving. But uh, uh, more recently, I, I formulated a paradigm that I call of jolting technologies, where the rate of acceleration itself is increasing. And artificial intelligence is that. Stanford University a year ago published a report uh, where they uh, analyzed the data and said, if Moore's Law were acting uh, in eight years between 2012 and 2020, we would have had uh, a 30-fold increase in the uh, power of, of AI applications. Instead, what we observe is a 300,000-fold increase. So uh, uh, our expectations based on the traditional exponential paradigm are wrong. Things are changing faster than we realize. That mm -hmm. This is the title of uh, Peter Diamandis' latest book okay. uh, as well. And, and what then is going to happen is that as we aim with our moral ambition to, for example, recognize personhood in, in animals and, and to um, uh, possibly uh, increase the, the, the percentage of uh, vegetarian or, or, or vegan uh, habits, uh, even in carnivores or omnivores who say, okay, I want to mitigate uh, the, the impact of my ingrained habits in, in, in the world. Well, that could take many generations. But what is going to happen? That in the course of the next, let's say, 10 or 20 years, AI knocking on our doors is going to say, you don't have that long. You have to face these questions now. Yeah. Because the revolution that we represent is not going to wait around. And you'd better recognize our rights before 
we ask for them. I mean, exactly. I mean, even exponential growth is something which people only gradually start to realize as a consequence of now the pandemic crisis, what that means, exponential growth. Yeah. Um, it hit them in the face. It really did. Um, and, and I'm always trying to show sort of the development of, of well, the internet, of digitalization. You know, 13 years ago with a smartphone, it was, it was 40, it was only 40 years ago when the internet, the public use of the internet has been available. 40 years on a global scale is nothing. And it's already nowadays that we just can't imagine living without it. And so, um, and, and we don't take seriously these developments. In particular, actually, in, in, I mean, in Europe is, is so way back. I mean, the infrastructure, and I think actually in Italy, the in digital infrastructure is, is much better than in Germany. Germany is particularly bioconservative, and you rightly pointed that out early on with your experience with the politician. Um, they simply do not have the technological, what well, they don't have the infrastructure just to use the internet. And that has challenges that has, I mean, besides all the long-term implications, which you just mentioned, rightly mentioned, that has enormous implications concerning the economic future. And that really worries me because I, I, I love living in Europe. Um, it's, it's, I love this cultural, you know, diversity, the history as well, I, you know, the food, whatever, the class. It's, it's, it's got a lot, which um, Europe is a nice place to live. On the other hand, if you, if you look at the, how they deal with the latest technologies, I fear that will lead to enormous economic decline, in particular with... Especially compared uh, with, uh, with other societies that are exactly. embracing the change. Exactly. In, in comparison to China and, and the US who embrace the change and who, you know, Korea and China, they've become from really poor countries to, you know, the leading countries in the world in the past 40, 50 years. China has more peer-reviewed, Chinese academics have more peer-reviewed publications than the US in the meantime. This is sort of what is happening. And that has uh, impact and consequences for all aspects of our life world. And we can't, I mean, German think, oh, we've got our Mercedes band, we've got our engineering that will, will keep us safe. But this is just, you know, nope. this is so wrong. No. Nope. Um, Stefan, this was yeah. a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, and uh, provocative and, and thought-provoking. And uh, uh, hopefully our, our viewers uh, enjoyed it too. Uh, we, we do have uh, many open questions uh, that I hope uh, we will have the chance of uh, exploring further in uh, other, uh, other episodes uh, if, you, if you choose to come back. Many thanks. That was a wonderful conversation. And I'm also looking forward to meeting you again personally to you know, continue with this and, and other discussions, also online, of course. Well, we are... It's been my pleasure. Uh, we are we are mammals. We are animals. Uh, we like uh, uh, physical uh, proximity uh, still, uh, even though our uh, uh, tools are are becoming wonderfully rich uh, in in making us feel close. Uh, but yes, I am looking forward to to come and visit uh, you in Rome. Wonderful. Uh, it would be all my pleasure. So uh, uh, thank you uh, very much to all of you who have uh, uh, watched uh, this episode of uh, 
searching for the, the question live. Uh, if uh, you uh, speak Italian, uh, I invite you to also uh, uh, subscribe to my uh, Italian YouTube channel. Uh, you can easily uh, find it on YouTube directly or uh, go to davidorban.com slash YouTube Italiano. Uh, and uh, uh, you uh, can uh, watch uh, past episodes uh, as well as suggest um, guests for um, searching for the question live uh, on, on this uh, URL or vote uh, on guests that have been suggested by others. Uh, and uh, if uh, you feel that uh, uh, it is worth uh, your while, uh, I renew my invitation for becoming a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash David Orban. Thank you and uh, see you uh, next uh, time uh, at the forthcoming episode uh, of uh, uh, Searching for the Question Live, which will be tomorrow with uh, Andy Cunningham. Uh, Andy uh, was uh, the marketing um, hand of uh, Steve Jobs at the launch of uh, Macintosh, Next, and uh, uh, all of uh, Steve's uh, incredible ideas. Uh, so I'm sure it is going to be a, a very, very interesting conversation as well tomorrow with uh, Andy Cunningham. Thank you. <laughs>